Snap Studios. My birth family. The family I was born into. My mother, my brother, sister, dad. If some master wizard were to sit us all down together at the same place at the same time and ask us what we believe, what we think about the world, about politics, about the weather. We couldn't even agree on the weather outside. If this wizard were to ask us just basic questions that would erupt a towering argument the likes of which the world has never seen, how then were we living together under the same roof? How is this possible? I marvel at the beliefs my parents hold. They look at me with bewilderment and astonishment. At any family gathering, the war would be intense. But thank goodness that the next generation needs looking after. That the turkey... What, you're vegan now? That the turkey is not going to cook itself. That someone's going to have to shovel this driveway again. That the gravy is burnt and now I have to make it over again after I told you to watch it close the first time. And why? Why is there a bowling ball in the refrigerator? Thank goodness for that. Because if there wasn't a bowling ball in the refrigerator, how could I possibly enjoy these people that I love? Today, in Snap Judgment's underground lair, we proudly present the Gratitude Special. Amazing stories of people to remind you why you bother with people in the first place. My name is Lynn Washington. Please, someone tell my mother that I don't want to read the article that she found on the internet somewhere because you're listening to Snap Judgment. Again, the Snap Judgment Gratitude Special on the playground at a Texas elementary school where little Terry Galloway was playing with her friends. Snap Judgment. Okay, so one time we were running around on the playground, just running around on the playground, and all of a sudden I could just feel myself lift I thought, oh my God, look at me, look at me, look at me. I looked around and no one seemed to be looking in my direction. And then I fell and I vomited. I was telling my friends, look, I was flying, I was flying. And they just thought, no, I tripped and I was sick and something was wrong. Terry would hallucinate like this all the time. And it wasn't until her mother took her to the hospital that she found out why. They found out that I was a... I was kind of blind as a bat and pretty much deaf as a doornail. And the combination of Terry's nearsightedness and hearing loss was the reason why she felt like she was flying at times. The cure was actually worse than a disease at this point. The doctor gave Terry a pair of super thick cat-eye glasses and a box hearing aid. This was 1960, and the hearing aids were far from dainty. The two molds that sat in Terry's ears connected to a box that sat in a halter that she would wear underneath her shirts. And it chained me to the ground. You know, it just chained me. 
So one day, Terry was in the front yard playing with her neighbors when her mom waved her over. In her mom's hand was a brochure. It was for a camp in Crivell, Texas. And she asked Terry if she wanted to go. I had been talking about camp because, for me, camp was where the rich kids went. These kids, when they would come back from that, they always looked so, so tanned, you know, and so fit and just giddy with whatever success that camp brought and also the sense of community. I thought, wow, yes, I want to go. <laughs> you bet. I was going to be a, a whiz at archery and I was going to be so hot in my little tennis whites and, you know, and, uh, and, and I was going to ride a horse. This camp was free to kids with disabilities. Terry's mom told her it was a special camp. And Terry thought, special's good. So at the beginning of the summer, she boarded the bus to Kerrville, Texas. And I was daydreaming the whole trip there. I pictured myself all of a sudden slimming down and all of a sudden getting wonderfully tan. And, you know, and I was going to get transformed into one of the rich kids. We pull up to the Lions Camp for Crippled Children and we get out. And the minute I got off the bus, I knew this was not a camp for rich kids. You know, nobody's jumping off the bus with a tennis racket. There's not a horse in sight. All around me are these kids that I'm looking around, and I've never seen anything like this. It's, it's kids that... <laughs> you know, there are kids that are three feet tall and kids that have uh, arms like flippers and, and kids with these milky white eyes and kids that are in chairs and drooling and, and uh, you know, kids on crutches. I was a good kid and I didn't want to be shocked by it. I, I couldn't believe that life had done this to children. I felt myself be turned inside out. It was just fear because this was the unknown. The counselors rounded the kids up and divided them by gender and age for the cabin assignments. Terry was assigned to the Chippewa cabin with the other 9 to 11-year-old girls the screens and you're in their little camp setting and it's a little camp cottage thing but of course everything's accessible and everything's very very clean you know everything but it, it still has this sense of camp we used to call each other uh, all sorts of things like you know you know I, I was deafy and this girl was one leg sometimes we'd call her Peggy she had gotten her leg kind of cut off in an automobile accident. And to this, to us, it was extraordinarily glamorous. We had a prosthesis, and it was so marvelous. We would watch her strap it on and take it off. It was like a production, a play. And then there was Dolores. She was so wonderful. She was so kind and funny. She had, like, little dark eyes like Bambi. You know, she had very dark hair. But she was, she was paralyzed from the neck down. She was uh, on a bed for the most part. 
And so, because I loved her and we were friends, we would go to uh, breakfast together, and sometimes I, they would let me push her her bed, or I'd push her well bed to, to some event, and then we'd sit and talk. While most of the girls in the Chippewa cabin seemed to become fast friends, Terry only had Dolores. She wasn't exactly part of the in crowd. I wanted to be one of the crowd. I wanted to be in the group. I wanted to be a member of that. But they were cold. You know, I would, I would make overtures, and they weren't accepted. And they had their little clique. Would you say that there were kids at camp who didn't like you? Yeah, there were a lot of people who hated my guts, I got to say. Because one way or another, Terry managed to offend pretty much everyone at camp. I would do things like, um, I love Jerry Lewis. So I was imitating Jerry Lewis. But Jerry Lewis's funny walk looked exactly like the walk of the girl who had CP, cerebral palsy. And I don't realize that she thinks I'm making fun of her. Or um, the little person. She's like three years older than I am. And I'm calling her a little cutie, you know. And the blind girl didn't like me because, one, I, I would kind of, I would try to push her along. You know, she was take she would take too long. And so I wanted to push her along, push her along in the line, push her along, hurry up, hurry up. I thought I was being helpful. Since there was no tennis, no archery, no horseback riding at the Lions camp for crippled children, all Terry really ever did was read Mad Magazine with her only friend, Dolores. And sometimes, they'd go swimming. The pool was divided into two halves, shallow and deep. The shallow, there were the kids that uh, they couldn't swim alone. You know, we call her shallow enders and floaters because they, they didn't have the use of their limbs and they always needed uh, two counselors often two counselors, just to move them through the water. And in the, the deep end, where the Chippewas, there were just three of us, okay? That was me, Deffy, and one leg, and then my nemesis, the blind girl. We just did not like each other at all. First of all, she was snobby, and she didn't have much of a sense of humor, and I hated her. And every day, these three Chippewa campers would line up on the short end of the pool for a scrappy, splashy, chaotic race to the other end. The blind girl was still getting used to the texture of water is clueless. She could get uh, she could get a little lost. And the girl with one leg, she couldn't keep her balance, and so she would sometimes, she, when she would first start off, she'd be swimming around in circles which gave me, of course, a god-awful advantage. Well, what I couldn't do was hear, but that was okay because the uh, deep end instructor, would, she would chop her hands down, and I could see that, and she would scream, you know, go, and the blind girl could hear that. We knew if we win the races, you get the reward. At the end of the week, the deep end instructor would decide who out of the three was the best swimmer. The winner would go home with a plastic trophy painted in gold with the words best inscribed on the front. But what they really competed for was the attention of the deep end instructor. 
All the counselors seemed beautiful to us. You know, they were all young women. And uh, and they were, of course, physically perfect. And uh, she was a swimmer. And honey blonde and aqua eyes and, you know, the perfect body. And, and she was kind. You know, she had all the patience in the world. She thought we were funny. And, uh, and so... And so, of course, we loved her. If I get that cup and I get her attention, that means I'm, I'm normal enough to be worth saving. I'm worth something. I wanted the prize, the perfection, the thing that was perfect. If she loved me, then I was worth loving. Terry's biggest competition was one leg, because everyone loved her. And Terry had lost a few races. But still, going into the final race, she more or less felt like this was her trophy to lose. I thought, ah, oh, this is a shoe and I was going to beat the pants off of them both. And I thought, I'm not going to beat them the way I usually do, which is that I left their asses in the water but because it was the last day to race, the deep end instructor decided that instead of doing the honors of yelling ready, set, go and chopping the water, she would let one leg do it. I'm reading her lips. I'm so nearsighted. I'm just blind as a bat. And I kind of understand that it's ready, set, go. But I get afraid. They've been practicing this too. And they are like shots, and they are like a half a length more than in front of me, and I think, I'm not going to win. I'm not going to win. And, and I'm just furious with myself, because I understand it's because I didn't hear the right thing, and I want to say stop the race, because I didn't hear it. I didn't hear it right. you got to stop it. They were not going to have a bit of sympathy for that. And so I start and I keep thinking, this isn't fair. I'm going to lose, and I can't even I can't even protest. I'm just so furious, and so I think, I'm giving in. <gasps> I just sink. I let it all go, and I just let myself drop. And then I come bumping back up. I'm performing driving. And I see the deep end instructor is seeing me. And so I'm going to go for it. And I drop back under. And I just know it all got very serious right at that moment. Because in a camp for crippled children, if a kid goes under the water, that's not fake. So she dives into the water and she grabs my arm and she's dragging in. I'm splattering. She tosses me out of the pool (laughs) and I let my body go limp. It's just like flat and she's on me and she's pressing the water and I knew it was coming, and I just gulped in as much water as I could, and she does it, and I'm spitting it up. I'm doing everything I can to make this performance seem real. When I open my eyes, that's when she just burst into tears and grabbed me. And, you know, and 
<laughs> Man, that's what I wanted, wasn't it? Everyone thought I had just about drowned. Terry walked around for the rest of the day feeling giddy, but also kind of guilty. And so when she walked into the cafeteria the next night for the awards ceremony, she didn't know what to expect. There's a little stage in the back. There was a pianist. He was blind, a blind guy who came there to perform. And then you have a, a field of chairs interspersed with the kids in their beds, on their world beds, the kids in their wheelchairs. It's a sea of children with every kind of body. So the award ceremony started. They would, you know, call out who won what, and you would go up there, you would be wheeled up there. So I'm sitting there. And Terry struggled to see and hear what was going on. But she did manage to see the deep end instructor make her way to the stage. And then, all of a sudden, the girl sitting in the wheelchair next to Terry grabbed her by the halter and held the speaker of her hearing aid and yelled, You won best swimmer! I had really mixed feelings because, you know, when I was not the most popular person in that camp, I've been rewarded for a huge lie. And I thought, well, I got to show him. And so I limped across the stage to get my award. And then I limped on my other leg after I had accepted the award. (laughs) I didn't want them hating me. They didn't even know the depth of the fraud. When Terry got back to her seat, her friend Dolores asked her if she had twisted her ankle. And I told her, yeah, both of them. I was, you know, I was in my cot thinking about what had occurred, what had happened. And I was just feeling so, you know, overwhelmed with guilt that I got this under such false pretenses. And also, it it, it was occurring to me what I had done. Terry thought about getting up, crawling out of her cot, and making her way to the deep end instructor's room. I wanted to go and knock on her door and, and, and fling myself at her feet and confess, confess, confess. But I was scared. You know, it, it seemed too much. It seemed like too adult, too another territory altogether to go confess that I did this and confess what she meant and then confess that I love doing it. I tried to go to sleep, but it wasn't going to happen. And so I stayed up half the night. I just curled my little body up, and I was feeling ashamed and, and thrilled, thrilled to my bones. Big thanks to Terry Galloway for sharing her story. After a stay at Lions Camp, Terry realized that she loved to perform, and she's still performing on stage, in films, and on the radio. To find out more about Terry's life, check out her book, Mean Little Deaf Queer. The original score was by Leon Morimoto. That story was produced 
bei dieser Igel. When the Snap Judgment Gratitude Special continues, we've got dogs, we've got superheroes, and we've got the best person in the entire world in just a moment. Stay tuned. Welcome back to the Snap Judgment Gratitude Special. Our next hero, well, he had some very simple demands. So this story is brought to us by a person with a very cool job. Yeah. Her name is Nancy Pope. Hi there. And she is a curator at the Smithsonian. Actually, at the National Postal Museum. Because, you know, history, truth, you gotta kind of do that. But back in 1984, when she first got to the Smithsonian, Nancy was given a really boring newbie task, organizing old photos in the archives. And uh, some of these photos I started looking, it's like it's a dog. You know, it's a dog laying down on mailbags. It's a dog sitting on mailbags. It's, you know, it's like, it's a dog. And I started looking, what is the thing with the dang dog? That's when one of her coworkers told her to go down to the third floor and see for herself. And I went down and they had all the stamps and a little post office and some mailboxes and a dead stuffed dog. Oni. Oni. That was the dog's name. The one she saw in the photographs. And now here he was, in the flesh. Kinda. The hair was mangy. The eyes were smoky. And he did not look like, you know, a, a cute little dog. He, he just looked like some little, you know, creepy monster. The dog had actually been in that case since 1911. And at one point, we lifted the case up maybe an inch, and this stench came flying out. We almost dropped the case and broke it right then and there. It was the smell of almost a century of dead dog, and it was the most horrible smell that I have ever smelled in my entire life. Okay, so not a great first impression, but here's the thing. Once upon a time, he had been the world's most famous canine, the only dog to travel around the world, and there was widespread mourning when he died. Nancy says that Oni's story begins in Albany, New York, way back in the winter of 1888, when a puppy belonging to one of the clerks at the local post office followed him to work one day. The puppy, Oni, was just a scruffy little mutt then, nothing special. But when the clerk left, Oni stayed. Because the pup loved the smell of mailbags. And the dog would head straight for a pile of empty mailbags that are off in the corner and just kind of snuggle up, wiggle around him, and go to sleep for the night. Oni loved the smell of mailbags so much that he would actually follow them onto the mail wagons that were bound for the train yard. If a bag ever fell off, he'd jump off with it and guard the bag until a postal clerk, and only a postal clerk, came by to pick it up. Maybe he recognized the uniform. I honestly don't know. Until one day, Oni took his love of mailbags a step further. When the wagon he was on arrived at the rail yard, he actually followed the bags onto one of the trains. And the clerks could have just thrown him off at that point, but they didn't. So, you know, he just went to Boston. 
Nancy says that back then, a train's mail car was a place of almost constant activity. You have to imagine postal employees frantically sorting an endless variety of packages, dodging kerosene lamps, trying to get everything ready for delivery before each and every stop. But in the midst of the chaos, there was a little corner where discarded mailbags lay in a pile. That's where Oni sat on this first trip, comfortable, just watching them do their work. And when the train opened up its doors in Boston, Oni jumped out and traveled with the mailbags on the wagon to the Boston post office, sat around there a little bit, and the next day, he went on the train and went back to Albany. Thus was established a pattern whereby Oni became a regular on these regional rail lines. Nothing too ambitious, just day trips. But the railway postal clerks were family. And when a clerk got to the end of his line, he would start talking about this dog. As Oni's reputation grew among the postal employees, so did his network of available trains. It's like he had the 19th century version of a Europass, only with mail cars. And then he started branching out to Cleveland, Philadelphia, and then Washington, D.C. He loved Brooklyn. But of course, that was just the Northeast. He also went south. To Mobile, Alabama, Jackson, Florida, Atlanta. And to the Midwest. Fort Wayne, Indiana, Wichita, Grand Rapids, in Minneapolis, Kansas City, St. Louis, Pute. And everywhere else. Albuquerque, Reno. Oh, my God. Cincinnati, Denver. Now I'm going to stop you. Yeah, you know, it was, you name a state, he was there. By 1889, there were reports of Oni in California. So we know that within a year, he's crossed the country. This is the part where I hate to poke a hole in it, and maybe I shouldn't. Oh, poke a hole. How much independence does this dog have in in in, in these decisions to be branching out? Is he, like, at the train station, and he, he sees a train car, and he's like, that one looks good, and, like, decides all on his own? Well, there was a lot to be said for that. Oni really did just jump on any old train he wanted and go wherever he wanted to go. When Oni got to a town, he always followed the same routine. He would get out of the train, take the mail wagon to the post office, and then spend the night, usually at the local postmaster's house, who always made sure that there were some mailbags for Oni to sleep on. And before long, newspapers across the country, if Oni was in town, the the publisher said, you gotta go out and do a story on the dog. Oni proved so popular that eventually it wasn't enough that he simply come to town. People wanted to prove that he'd been there. So they started putting these customized tags on his collar. Sometimes it was an official tag with the name of the town. Other times someone would hastily scratch their name on a hotel key and loop that through his collar. Lots of people gave him these little metal coupons. And, you know, if Oni had wanted to, he could have gotten five cents off for a loaf of bread at one spot, free drinks at the bar at a couple of others. He could have had a great night on the town if he was a person. Elaborate feasts were routinely held in Oni's honor. So rich and filling were the meals that the day after one such dinner in Providence, Rhode Island, Oni took one look at a free steak and walked away. And he just puts his nose up at it like, you know, I'm still full. I can't handle a steak. Oni had all the benefits of fame and none of the costs. He was a dog. He didn't know he was famous. He didn't feel any of the pressure, didn't worry about all the attention. He was free to just be, at least for the first few years. But then it gets to the point where, as Oni got more and more famous, the clerks start actually putting him on a train. Like, Oni needs to go on this train, wouldn't that be fun? Slowly but surely, the freewheeling hobo of everyone's imagination was no longer quite so freewheeling. 
increasingly in the very same articles that extolled Oni's freedom, you could read all about the cities where he could be found next. It was freedom scripted. But the height of Oni being handled by clerks was obviously the trip around the world. The trip was a marketing stunt put on by the city of Tacoma. They were trying to one-up their more famous neighbor, Seattle. So, with the consent of the post office, they sent Oni packing on a mail ship to East Asia. Where he got a passport from the Emperor of Japan. Then on to China and India. Through the Suez Canal. And then, via the Azores, back to America. He made it in 118 days. By this point, Oni was so famous that European newspapers issued heated editorials wondering why Oni had skipped their continent entirely. It seemed like everyone wanted a piece of him. And when he would go to each of these foreign lands, he was, he was trotted out. And Oni, you know, who knows whether he was happy or, or not. But as the clerks started kind of ruling his life, people added more and more tags to his collar. Businesses love to put something on him because it's free advertising for your business, which is fine, except, you know, you think the collar around the dog's neck, you add 10 tags, one thing, you start adding 20, 30 tags, the poor dog's not going to be able to lift his head up. Every time Oni returned to Albany, the clerks made sure to take the tags off. Eventually, they had to give him a harness to accommodate all the extra weight. But even that was rarely enough. The Smithsonian has 347 tags. It has been said in a lot of reports that he had over a 1,000, which is easy for me to believe. But I really think that, that Oni needed to stop riding the trains. Clerks were saying that he, he didn't look good. He didn't look well. Oni was growing increasingly irritable, especially when people tried to touch the tags on his harness, either to add or remove them. He also started fighting back when clerks tried to force him onto a particular train. He was just getting stubborn and old. So a clerk in St. Louis took him in. And I think in his time in the clerk's backyard, he started to relax and be his old dog self. And we know that Oni had enough free will that if he didn't want to stay there, he wouldn't have. But there were some clerks that just didn't want to hear that. You know, Oni, to them, Oni belonged on the train cars. So the clerks borrowed Oni for one last joyride. They put him on a train bound for Toledo. And at first, everything was the same as it always had been. Oni followed the familiar scent of the mailbags off the train and onto the wagon. But when he arrived at the Toledo post office, one of the clerks taking him to meet a local reporter tried to touch one of his tags. And that's what set him off. And he bites the clerk in the hand very hard twice. The clerk reeled off in pain. And when the postmaster came in to see what was going on, Oni attacked him too. And the postmaster calls a U.S. marshal named Shannon. Shannon comes into the room, takes out his pistol, and shoots Oni once in the head. Oni was killed instantly. When the news got out, obituaries around the country mourned his passing, and his body was taken to Washington, D.C., the post office's national headquarters. Over the years, 
as Oni went in and out of storage. He was forgotten. By the time Nancy stumbled upon him, the world's most famous canine had become a footnote. But thanks in part to her efforts, Oni is back in the spotlight, and in 2011, he got his own stamp. He also has his very own exhibit at the Smithsonian's Postal Museum. Nancy says it's one of the most popular exhibits there. But we have a good number of people who will say in a blog or in a review or whatever, you know, it's a great museum, but it's got this disgusting stuffed dog. Thank you so much to Nancy Pope for sharing Oni's story with us. And if you want to learn more, you can visit Oni in person and see some of those tags at the Smithsonian's National Postal Museum in Washington, D.C. We're going to have a link on our website to an interactive map of the museum put up showing all the places that we know Oni visited. It's, um, uh, it is what it is. Check it out at snapjudgment.org. The sound design for that story was by Leon Morimoto. It was produced by Joe Rosenberg. Are you not thankful that you heard that story, Snappers? The bounty continues in just a moment, a story that proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that hidden away in their subterranean alcoves, real superheroes exist. Snap Judgment, the gratitude special. Stay. From Snap Judgment's Orbiting Hall of Justice, welcome back to the Gratitude Special. My name is Glenn Washington. This guy, Liam, he told us that he knew someone who was a real hero, a bona fide real life Superman hero from our own hometown of Oakland. Sensitive listeners, please note. This story does contain language, violence, and graphic imagery. Snap Judgment. When I was about nine years old, we were at some park. It was, you know, late 50s, early 60s. Everybody lived kind of segregated. And so there was white people on one part of the pond, black people on the other. And I was out swimming, and my thing was, If I could feel the bottom with my feet, I was cool. But the bottom dropped off. I started panicking and I really couldn't swim well and I I was drowning. And the next thing I remember is someone just grabbing me and I remember being pulled back and then my feet hit the ground and it was this young girl and she pulled me to safety and just turned around and swam back to the group of white people that she was with. And I never forgot that because I'm I'm drowning and she's the only one that left that group and came over to help me. And it was the first time that I can remember someone putting themselves in injury for me. About 30 years later, It's 1989. Raven is living in West Oakland with his wife and kids. He works security at Oakland International Airport. And I was off that day. So we decided to go to Blockbuster and rent a video. So we got Pet Cemetery. Came home, put on my sweatpants, 
we all got comfortable and got all relaxed and she made popcorn and everything, put in the video. And I guess we got maybe about five minutes into it and then all of a sudden the house started shaking slowly and then it got started shaking more. I remember hearing the boom. Boom, 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 boom. Raven lived about a block away from the Cypress Freeway. The earthquake hit just after 5 p.m. during peak commute hours. And then as we got onto the porch, we looked to the right and there was a cloud of dust. I would say 40 feet high, maybe more. And you couldn't see the freeway structure anymore. All you could see was the cloud of dust moving towards us. And then out of this cloud of dust, this man runs out. His eyes were as big as saucers. And he yells, the freeway's fallen, the freeway's fallen. I looked at my wife and I said, come on. And we ran down into the cloud of dust. It's October 17th, 1989. The 6.9 Loma Prieta earthquake has just struck the Bay Area. The shaking lasts 15 seconds, downing power lines, destroying houses. It disrupts the World Series game between the Oakland A's and the San Francisco Giants. A few miles away from the ball game, a section of the Bay Bridge that connects Oakland and San Francisco has collapsed. And the double-decker Cypress Freeway right behind Raven's house, has also fallen. The cyberstructure has collapsed. We have a 50-foot section which has collapsed from westbound into eastbound. That the upper deck collapsed onto lower deck. When you first got into the cloud, it was like you couldn't, there was no sound. It's like standing in like a brown, moving fog bank. Thick. Then my mind starts to hear the horns blowing. And the horns are blowing louder and louder and louder. And my wife says, there's a man in the car there, look. Chunks of concrete from the structure had fallen on cars on the surface street below. There's a guy in the car and a huge piece of concrete is laying on top of him and the steering wheel is basically what's keeping it from crushing him. And it had hit him in the head, or something had hit him in the head, because I ran over there and I'm trying to, to get the concrete. He says to me, what happened, man, what happened? And I said, the freeway fell on you, the freeway fell. Raven started to help the guy in the car when he heard his wife calling to him, pointing at a woman who had crawled out from a crevice between the top and bottom decks of the freeway. She was clinging to the railing, a few stories off the ground. Raven ran over and stood below the woman. And she said my boyfriend, she was saying, was in the truck and it's on fire. And she's hanging over the side. I didn't have any ladders or anything, but the flames are starting to come out higher and higher and she's starting to hang out further and further. I said, let go, I'll break your fall. And she said, I'll die if I fall. I said, you're gonna die if you stay there. And she crossed herself and said, I'm letting go. And I said, I'm waiting. And she let go. 
she hit me and it felt like everything in the world landed on top of me. I, I, I hit the ground. My thumb popped out of joint and was hanging back here. And I had to grab my thumb and pop it back into joint. She was kind of on top of me. So I rolled out from under her and looked at her and I could see that one of her legs had a compound fracture and the bone was sticking out. Um, I grabbed her dress real quick and covered it up. I said, are you okay? Are you okay? And she said, get me the hell out from under this thing. And I scooped her up and ran her over to my wife. My wife and son flagged down a van. And um, from what I understand, the highway patrol told me she was the first person to reach um, Alta Bates Hospital. The first responders hadn't gotten to the freeway yet. The only people helping out at this point were Raven and his neighbors. During the earthquake, cars driving on the top deck of the freeway had fallen down onto the lower deck. Raven, he wanted to get to the people trapped inside. So he climbed a tall eucalyptus tree right next to the freeway and lowered himself onto the top deck. He looked down into the wreckage and saw a minivan. There was screaming coming from the van. That's why we went straight to the van. And there were two other guys up there. They just came out of nowhere and just started helping me. So we started trying to get the doors open. There were six women in the minivan. Raven and the other men, some of his neighbors, were able to pull a couple of them out to safety. We got those two out, and then uh, first responders started to arrive. When we were trying to get the women out, the top deck had dropped down, and then there was all kind of pieces of concrete that were dangling. But I wasn't really paying attention to that because the uh, firefighter told us to try and push the minivan up. So I went around to the front, and we're all trying to push it up so we could get the doors unjammed and get this out. And um, there was an aftershock at that point. And I'm standing there, and I look up, and I see one of the firefighters who's at the other end, and he's going to me like this, waving me towards him. And I'm wondering why, and he points up, right? And I look up, and there's this, it's got, it had to be like at least 14 feet in diameter, piece of concrete dangling by one support bar, and it was just dangling over my head. Raven and the paramedics laid the women down on stretchers. Raven was tending to one of the women. She wouldn't let me leave. Um, when I got her out and everything, I got her comfortable, got the other woman out, and I came over to her. And I had, I, you know, I'm stroking her forehead. I said, you're gonna be all right, you're gonna be all right, you're gonna be all right. I could tell she was in shock, you know. And um, she reached up and grabbed my shirt. And she said, don't leave me, don't leave me. And I said, I'm not going anywhere. I'll be right here, you know. And I literally had to pry her hand off so I could go do whatever else I could do, you know. And I hear my wife's voice over the din of everything. Raven, Raven. And I locked in on that. And then I heard another male voice yelling at my wife. <laughs> so I come running over to the rail and he has my wife by the arm and he has all the people lined up against the wall of this building over here. And these are all the people that had come to help now. And he's got all the people lined up and my wife is refusing to be put against the wall and she's yelling to me, we're helping people, whatever. 
And the cop is just telling her to get against the wall, get against the wall. And I came over there and I yelled, hey, what the f are you doing? We need help down here. And he looks up at me and he runs back to his car. The cop just drove off. Raven and his neighbors rushed back in to help people. There were still drivers trapped. Raven could hear them screaming. He wanted to get to the people trapped inside, but there were only a few points where he could wedge his body between the crumbling layers of concrete. There was a hole in the side, like on the other side where the woman had crawled out. And I tried to get in through there because uh, there were, you could hear the people yelling, horns blowing, and the smell of gasoline and all that. And the one thing that I could hear over everyone else, and maybe because he was closer up, was a man yelling, there's fire, my legs are burning, I'm burning, I'm burning, I'm burning. And um, this is the part that bothers me. It's because I don't know if, if what I truly was hearing was real. Then that man, he knew he was dying, you know. I don't usually talk about this point because it's the, the one point that, um, where I started to go in and couldn't go all the way in. I never tested myself to find out if I could because I know from the spot that I was in, just the, the confinement and the smell of the smoke and the gasoline, I'm not going to say it sent me into a panic, but it caused me to scurry out. This has always bothered me personally. And so at that point, you know, I'm looking around and the firefighter who had talked to me earlier, he's looking at me and he's got this oxygen thing in his hand and he comes over to me and he says, come here, sit down. And when he said that to me, I realized my legs were shaking. And he tells me to come over and sit down. And then I realized all the adrenaline was just flushing out of my, out of my body. He gave me oxygen for a while. And uh, after that, I got up and went home. Hey, Raven, you'd been, you'd been living by that freeway for years. What changed after, after the earthquake? Imagine, I, I can't describe it, it's constant noise, constant sound. Now I'm trying to think of something to relate to it because that was the noticeable thing after the earthquake was the silence. Thank you, Raven for sharing your amazing stories with Snap. And we're happy to say, Snappers, that Raven and his wife are still Oakland locals and their house is still standing. Original score for that piece by Davey to the Kims, it was produced by Liam Donahue and Liza Smith. Liam has a podcast about all kinds of crazy Oakland history. It's called East Bay Yesterday. Find out more information on our website, snapjudgment.org. It is the season for storytelling. 
long car rides, uncomfortable dinners, family time. Lord, we've got just a thing to help you through. Just subscribe to the Snap Judgment Podcast. Snap is brought to you by the team that understands that sweet potato pie trumps pumpkin pie every single time. My gratitude is immense for my brother, from a different mother, Mr. Mark Rich. Pat Messina Miller likes cake. Anna Sussman feeds her kids pure cane sugar right out of the box. Winsor Gorio feeds himself pure cane sugar right out of the box just to quiet himself down. Liz Mack thinks that turkey tastes like chicken. Conversely, Adiza Egan thinks that chicken tastes like turkey. Nancy Lopez deep fries both her mashed potatoes and her gravy. Eliza Smith, tail to cot. Leon, no salad, Morimoto. And Jasmine Aguilera eats steak with a spoon. Thank you for everything, Snap Nation. You've given us so much love. I hope you feel us giving it right back to you. And even though this is not the news, no way is this the news. In fact, you could write the great American novel in one night, sell it for money and fame, retire to the south of France, only to realize several years later that your masterwork is a word-for-word plagiarism of season three of The Muppet Show, and you will still, still, not be as far away from the news as this is, but this is PRP.